today we're going to uh, today we're going to speak about the Bhagavad Purana. We've already talked about the Puranas, ancient stories, and uh, this is a this is a book uh, called Krishna, the Beautiful Legend of God. This is a um, translation of the tenth book of the Bhagavad Purana. And the tenth book is very famous because it's it's the main source for the life of Krishna. This book was translated by Edwin Bryant, a friend of mine who uh, was teaching at Harvard actually when he did this. Now he's at Rutgers, but this Penguin Classic. And uh, if you mention my name, I get a I get a commission if you buy this. Anyway, so. Uh, in his translation of the 10th canto, he, in his introduction, he explains about the Bhagavad Purana. There are several things I want to talk about. And then I want to actually tell some of the stories, because the reason the Puranas are so popular, the reason they're so important, is because people like the stories. So I'm actually going to tell some of the stories rather than just talk about the stories. We'll actually tell some of the stories. Um, let's see. So, the Bhagavad Purana, uh, as Edmund Bryan points out, uh, it is the most famous work of Purana literature. There are many Puranas, 18 Mahapuranas, or great Puranas, and lots of minor Puranas, but of all the Puranic literature, uh, this is the most important, the Bhagavad Purana, in terms of its influence in Indian history. It's by far the most important. Uh, it recognizes the most famous work of Puranic literature, as evidenced by the overwhelming preponderance of traditional commentaries on the text. Whereas most of the Puranas have produced no traditional commentaries at all, and others only one or two, the Bhagavata has inspired 81 commentaries. So it's really in a, completely in a class by itself. It's produced 80, or there have been 81 commentaries on this, whereas other Puranas have none, or one or two. So it's probably more commentaries on the Bhagavad Purana than all the others put together. Uh, so, so these are these are 81 commentaries which still exist in Sanskrit. Others don't, don't exist anymore, but there were others. It's been translated into almost all the languages of India with 40, 40 or so translations on record in Bengal alone. So just in Bengal, there's, there's actually over 40 translations. Good morning. Uh, it was the first Purana to be translated into a European language. Three different French translations were done in the mid middle of the 1800s and so on. So, uh, so it, it's the most important Purana, especially because of the 10th book, which talks all about the life of Krishna. That's really why, that's what makes the Purana so famous, the life of Krishna. Uh, now, in this Purana, uh, another point... Okay, I'll read this. In the Mahabharata, which you know, the Hari Vamsa, which is the appendix to the Mahabharata telling about Krishna. And Vishnu Purana, there's no doubt that Krishna is an incarnation of Vishnu. And in the textbook you may have read that Krishna is an incarnation of Vishnu. However, uh, the roles, these roles between Vishnu and Krishna, for the most part, have been somewhat reversed in the Bhagavata. There are abundant passages in the text that state that actually Krishna is the original form of God in that Vishnu is actually an incarnation of Krishna. And uh, specifically, there's a text 1.3.28, uh, which 
few more customers there. So, um, there's one very important verse, which is called the Mahavakya. I think I wrote that. Did I? No. Okay, I didn't write it. Mahavakya means the great statement. Vakya is like English vocal or voice. It means from the same Indo-European root. So, Vakya means a statement. And Maha, great. Magna, like Magnavox. That company still exists? Magnavox? Okay. Well, Magnavox, you can see how it's just Sanskrit. Or very close Sanskrit. Magna, great, which in Sanskrit is just Maha. And then uh, Vox is just Sanskrit Vox. Same word. So, Mahavaki means the great statement. The great statement. Also the name of an ancient appliance company. But anyway, so Mahavaki, so the idea is that in Sanskrit literature, there is a great statement or which is thematic. It tells, it's like what the essence of that text is. And so the uh, learned commentators debate over what the Mahavakya is. What is the great thematic statement of the text? And in the Vaishnava tradition, in the Bhagavata is a Vaishnava work. It's dedicated to Vishnu or Krishna. Uh, the claim is made that the Mahavakya is 1.328, which says in, in the third chapter of the first book of the Srimad uh, Bhagavatam, or the Bhagavad Purana, there's a statement, there's a list of the incarnations, the avatars of Krishna. And then there's a statement, that these are expansions and expansions of expansions of the Supreme Lord, but that Krishna is too, Bhagavan Swayam, but Krishna is the Lord himself. And so this is taken as the Mahavakya, that actually Krishna is the original source or the original form of God. The word avatar means an incarnation, so the word avatari means the source of all the avatars. And it's what's said that Krishna is the avatari, the source of all the avatars. And this is actually the same uh, claim that is made in the Bhagavad Gita, where Krishna says that I'm the source of everything, that for me everything emanates. So the Bhagavad Purana, in agreement with the uh, Bhagavad Gita, claims that actually Krishna is the original source of everything, even if Vishnu, who is simply, a, it's, it's sort of like, uh, Krishna is God at home and Vishnu is God at the office. So, because like, let's say you have a certain persona, you have a certain, you know, who you are when you're at home with your family, with your intimate friends, and then when you go to the office or go to school or go to work or whatever, you've got to be sort of like, you know, Joe or Sally's student or, you know, whatever, whatever role you play, whatever job you have. So that's the idea that when God goes to the office, it's Vishnu creating worlds and, you know, whatever he does for a living. So then, but in, in the original form, the idea is that in the original form, God, in his most intimate setting with those who love him most, uh, that's Krishna. And just as your official persona, who you are officially, uh, in a sense, is not ultimately who you are. Who you really are ultimately is who you are with the people that, that you love the most and the people that love you the most. That's, in a sense, who you really are. And that, that's the, the logic here. So anyway, that's another distinguishing feature of the Bhagavad Purana. How it came to be written is described in the Bhagavatam. There's a very interesting story. Vyasa, Vyasa, the editor of the Vedas, Veda Vyasa, a very famous figure in Hinduism, who's credited with composing the Mahabharata and most of the Puranas and dividing the Vedas and so on. It's that they actually did all this after he edited the Vedas, put the Vedas in the form, we now have them, after he even composed the Mahabharata, you know, the biggest book, 
after he did all kinds of other things, he was actually dissatisfied. Here you have this great sage up in the mountains, uh, uh, up in his ashram, high in the Himalayan mountains, surrounded by, you'll be interested to know, uh, berry trees. But anyway, so there he is. He's done this massive work, this great contribution in order to provide suffering humanity with all this wisdom, this revealed wisdom. And what does he get for all his trouble? Uh, he's unhappy. He's actually unhappy. And he feels dissatisfied. So then his guru comes to him. His guru somehow understands that he's unhappy and comes to him. His guru is Narada. And tells him that the basic problem here, the reason you're unhappy, is because you produce so many literatures to encourage and engage people who are materialistic. And so it's like you met them halfway. Human society in general tends to be materialistic. So here are all these scriptures that promise material rewards. Remember, like, you want to go to material heaven, you want to get a beautiful wife, great husband, great children, a lot of money, here's your mantra. So in the Vedas, you have all these things you can do. And in other scriptures also throughout the world, that if you follow this formula, if you're devout, if you worship in this way, you'll get everything you want. In fact, the whole problem in the book of Job in the Old Testament is Job did everything he was supposed to do. Why wasn't he materially flourishing? Well, then he had a problem. Yeah. So, Vyas was wondering... Why am I unhappy? And so Narada said, why don't you forget about trying to write something or compose something that everybody's going to like. Forget about trying to produce a sacred literature that you know everyone will accept. Just tell the truth. Just say what it really is spiritually, whether or not people like it. And Vyasa, uh, of course, accepted the order of his guru. And then it said he went into samadhi. You remember this term, samadhi? Into deep trance. And he actually envisioned the Lord, or he saw, he had a direct experience of God. And as a result of this experience, he composed the Bhagavad Purana. So that's where the Bhagavad Purana comes from, according to the Bhagavad Purana. It was a result of this, <laughs> this vision of the ass, when he decided to sort of, you know, get down to the real stuff. And very inter interestingly, I didn't write this on the board, but it's still true, um, the Bhagavad Purana begins with the statement of Vedanta, the Brahma Sutras. The Brahma Sutras begin, uh, well, now let us inquire into the absolute truth, that's Sutra 1. And Sutra 2 is Janmadhyasajataha, the absolute truth is that from which everything comes, and by whom everything is maintained, and in whom everything finally comes to rest. And so the Bhagavatam begins with those very words from the Brahma Sutras, from Vedanta. And then says that that source of everything is actually Krishna. So, um, as far as dating the um, Bhagavad Purana, same trouble as dating the Puranas in general. In the there was a very famous Purana specialist who taught at the University of Pennsylvania, named uh, Rocher, R O C H E R, Professor Rocher, who was a probably the most famous Puranic specialist. And he actually declined to even try to date the Puranas. For the simple reason is that there's so much material, some of it extremely ancient, as Brian points out in his book. Uh, some of it goes back to the earliest proto-historical levels of Vedic culture. Some of it's more recent. And so what some scholars have done is you take the oldest stuff and say, well, it all, it all must be old. 
And some people take the newest stuff and say it all must be recent. And the dates you have in your book, there's some, you know, they're, they're, they tend to take the more recent material in the Puranas and say that's the age of it. So the great, well, probably one of the most prominent Puranic specialists in academia declined to even try to date. He said, like, you know, I'm not even going to try to do that. And that's the same point that Brian makes. It's very difficult to date it. But some, but some of the material is extremely ancient, and of course the Puranas are mentioned in early Vedic literature. So that's dating. Uh, another important point is that um, because the Bhagavad Purana, the Puranas in general, tend to describe the activities of God or, or, or various incarnations of God or great sages or kings and so on, especially in terms of the activities of God on earth, God coming to earth and doing things, uh, it's called Leela, this word Leela, which is also a popular woman's name in India, isn't it? Leela. Anyway, so Leela, often translated, sometimes it's translated like sports, sporting act, well, not in the sense of like baseball or <laughs> ice hockey, but pastimes, in the sense things you do, not because you need the money, not because you have some bodily need like I'm drinking water because I'm thirsty or I'm mating because I have a reproductive urge or whatever. Not things that we do because of needs or urges or we need the money or whatever, but things we do completely out of, out of complete freedom, simply for pleasure. There's no need to do it. You don't have to do it. You're simply doing it out of, as an expression of your own nature and happiness. And, and that's the idea of Leela. So the word Leela according to scholars, first appears in the Sanskritic literature uh, in the Brahma Sutras. In the Brahma Sutras, the, the, the important part of Vedanta. Uh, Sutra 2.133. In the sense that some people say that because God is self-satisfied, God being a complete, perfect being, and if you know your Aristotle, you see the relationship, God being a complete, perfect being has nothing to do, therefore why would God create a world? People do things because they feel a need to do them or desire to do them. But if God is absolutely satisfied, why would he do anything, including create? And of course the answer is that even a, a satisfied person, perhaps only a perfectly satisfied person, is capable of pure love. Because in a relationship, as long as I still have selfish desires in my relationship with other people, some extent I can be beneficent or altruistic or loving or this or that, but I've got to get something for myself. I've got to get something out of it. It's like if you're doing business and you're selling your product, sure, I'll give you the best price I can, I'll help you out on this, but you know, I've got to make something on this. I do this for a living. And so in our relationships, it's like you know, we're loving and affectionate, but we also do it for a living in the sense that we have certain desires, whether there are, let's say, gross physical desires, they may be subtle desires like vanity, like I need to know that someone thinks I'm really beautiful. I mean, I don't really aspire to that at this point in my life. But those who are younger may still have aspirations. So those kinds of, those kinds of emotional and physical needs means that in that relationship, no matter how poetically you express yourself, uh, it's still, there's something, you know, it's, there's this, at least an aspect of it which is still business. I mean, you know, we've got to do business here. Like, I need something out of this relationship. And so it's the person who has no personal desires, who is completely self-satisfied, that actually has the freedom to love purely. 
And so the, the Brahma Sutra answers that even a, a perfectly self-satisfied being, such as God, can choose to act out of love and compassion, not out of any selfish motive. And Krishna, of course, himself says in the Gita that nanavatam avatavyam, I have no needs, there's nothing like, what do you get the deity that has everything? So, what Krishna says in reply to that is, is love. The one thing you could say God doesn't have is, is your love, if you choose to give that love, and, and of course, uh, again, it's not that God has, let's say, according to this view, has a self-esteem issue and therefore wants you to love him. But rather that a, the idea is that God wants us to love because it's the best thing for us. That's the best possible state we can be in. That's the greatest happiness we could achieve is to experience that pure love. And so a completely self-satisfied being can desire that others love him or her for their own benefit. because It's just like, imagine, let's say, really good parents who want the children to feel love for the family simply because it's good for the child, it's healthy for the child to learn to love and to feel gratitude and so on. So anyway, uh, so the Bhagavatam talks about Krishna Leela. Any questions on these things so far? If not, uh, this ends the philosophical portion of today's program, and uh, I'm going to tell some of the stories, so you can, because that's really what the problems are about, they're about these great stories, and I've chosen three, let's see, Prahlad, Dhruva, and the Rasalila. So, I'll first tell the story of Prahlad, and I've chosen stories which are extremely famous in Hindu culture, these are the big, major league, famous stories. In, in, in Hindu culture. So Prahlad, uh, okay, let's take it back a step. There was a demon. This is considered like, like, the, like the all-time greatest demon. If you had to vote for who was the greatest all-time demon, it would be Hiranya Kashifu. If you know there's an old James Bond movie called Goldfinger, well, uh, this is Gold Cushion. And uh, this is what his name is in Sanskrit, actually. So you could sing about him to the, you know, to the theme music from Goldfinger. So, gold, uh, means gold, and uh, Kashifu means cushion. So the idea is that, Hir that gold cushion, Hiranya Kashifu, was, was into gold and uh, betting. And, you know, and, and he wasn't alone there. So, yes? I know you didn't address the question of evil in the Bhagavad Gita, but in the Bhagavad Purana, I mean, how does a person like this? Yeah, well, okay, we'll get to that. We'll touch upon that. <laughs> the course of the story. So, Hiranyakashipu was this uh, cosmic demon, because just as there are, according to this worldview, there are powerful beings, gods, in higher worlds, so they also have their enemies. So there are, so you might say, cosmic demons a view which you find actually throughout ancient literature. So, uh, Hiranyakashipu decided to exploit the Vedic system to get power. And this is a very important point. The austerities of yoga, when you perform yoga, and let's say in the old-fashioned way, you go up, let's say, to a snow-covered mountain peak, and you're dressed only, well, hardly anything, loincloth, and uh, you fast, you hardly eat, and you, and you subject your body to all kinds of pain and trouble, 
this is a this is one of the most common themes in this Puranic and Itihasa literature. That austerity, tapas, austerity leads to power. That if you if you perform these austerities, it gives you mental power and ultimately mystic powers. And these yogic powers, these cities, are not necessarily morally positive. Because some of the greatest yogis in the history of the Hindu culture, Vedic culture, were bad guys. Were bad guys. I mean, power is not morally good or evil. It's just power. And so Hiranyakashipu performed these extraordinary austerities. In fact, it said he performed, he fasted in yoga to the point where there was no flesh on his body and he was able as a soul to keep his prana, his life air, circulating within his bones. Don't try this at home. So, anyway, so here you have this great demon, cosmic demon, who is so, who, who finally, and, and again, this is a very common type story. He performs such great austerities that, that, the Brahm, that Brahma, the creator, the creator Brahma, has to come to him to award him a boon, like he's earned the grand prize. And so Brahma comes to him and says, what would you like in return for all your austerities? And Hiranyakashipu says, I want to be immortal. I want to be immortal. And Brahma says, we have a problem here. Because we're in the material universe and even I, the creator, am not immortal. And there's Brahma, if you study the literature, Brahma lives for, well, not so long, just about a few hundred trillion years. But then, but then he also dies. When the universe is destroyed, Brahma goes with it. So Hiranyakashipu, who something like a contemporary lawyer. Hiranyakashipu thought he could find a loophole in this cosmic law. He thought he could find a loophole, so he said, okay, since you can't award me immortality, grant me this. Grant me that I will not be killed by any god, by any demon, by any human being, by any animal, and so on. And so Brahma said, okay, you can have that. And then he said, grant me that I will not die during the day or night. And Brahma said, okay. Then he said, grant me that I will not die inside or outside of any building. And Brahma granted that. So he thought, well, you know, I got it. I got what I wanted. So Hiranyakashipu became so powerful that he actually sort of took over the universe. In fact, he defeated Indra. He defeated Indra, the Lord of Heaven, and took over Indra's world. And uh, the gods, being obviously very unhappy at this... Uh, at this situation, uh, prayed to Vishnu. Because Vishnu, as explained in this book, is sort of a transcendent deity. He doesn't, he's not one of the nature gods. Vishnu is transcendent, as we found in the Rig Veda, the Parampadam, the highest abode of Vishnu. So Vishnu said that um, the message they got back from Vishnu was, don't worry, because although Hiranyakashipu is a great demon, his, he will have a child, and this child will be a great saint. And when the father offends this child, he'll be destroyed. The idea being that the most dangerous thing one can do is to offend a holy person. So, anyway, Hiranyakashipu had this child, Prahlad, who he wanted to train up as, you know, an up-and-coming young demon. And so the father sent his child to school. But, to the father's horror, the child, during recess, instead of learning all kinds of things like, you know, dirty politics and how to murder people and all these <laughs> demonic arts, the child would teach his uh, schoolmates about Vishnu. 
the child started preaching about Vishnu right in the school. And Hiranyakashipu was a sworn enemy of Vishnu. So, so Hiranyakashipu called the teachers in. Who are they? Uh, Amarga and... Uh, Sanda and Amarga. He called the teachers in and, of course, threatened them and they were quivering and they said, we swear we haven't taught him all this, you know, nasty stuff about Vishnu. So then, but it kept going on. Prahlad was a five-year-old boy. He was a five-year-old boy and he was converting all of his schoolmates to become Vaishnavas, to accept Vishnu and to give up their demonic life. So finally, the father called in his child, put him on his knee, and said, uh, it said, said, what are you doing? You have to stop this. And uh, Prahlad wouldn't stop it. So finally, the father decided to kill his own child. So Hiranyakashipu, gold cushion. I mean, he's, you know, this is like the, this is like absolutely the dark side of the force. And so he decided to kill his child. And, and he tried in every possible way to kill Prahlad, and he couldn't kill him. So here he is, Hiranyakashipu, the most powerful guy in the universe. Prahlad's his little five-year-old boy. He tries to poison him. He gives him poison food. So then Prahlad takes the food and does what he always does. He makes a little offering. As is done, he makes a little offering to Vishnu. The food becomes transformed into prasadam, or spiritual food, and he eats it, and no problem. So then he throws his son off a cliff, and the son just, and, and Vishnu just, you know, brings him down like a feather. He has the child trampled by elephants, and then the, the, the elephants just won't touch the child. And, and finally, the father is beside himself because he can't kill his child. And so he, there's this great scene. Where the father pulls out his sword and cries out to his child, where do you get your power? And the boy answers soberly, he says, well, from the same place you get your power, from Vishnu. Because ultimately, he sort of quotes, you know, Vedanta to him. Everything comes from God. So that's it. Hiranyakashipu can't stand it anymore. So he takes out a sword to kill his child. And he says that, he said, where is, where is Vishnu? Because I'll kill Vishnu. And uh, Prahlad gives him a philosophically correct answer. According to the Vaishnava tradition, he says, well, actually, Vishnu is all-pervading. So Vishnu is everywhere. So then he, uh, Father Hiranyakashipu said, is Vishnu in the pillar of this palace. And uh, Prahlad looked and said, yeah, yeah, he is, he's there. Because he's a self-realized soul, he's a five-year-old boy. So Hiranyakashipu cries, and I'll kill Vishnu. Then he, he takes his sword, he s- strikes the pillar of the palace. Suddenly there's this like roaring sound that makes all the world shake, and out of the palace comes this horrific form, which is, has the body of a human being, but the head and the claws of a lion. And uh, this incredible being comes out, which is called, well, the very name is a very famous incarnation of Vishnu, called Nrsingha, or Narasingha, uh, or Nara means man, and uh, Singha means lion, the man-lion. So, this great cause and battle takes place. Hiranyakashipu tries to fight this avatar. This avatar just came to protect Prahlad. And uh, finally, Narahari or Narasingha takes... Hiranyakashipu on his lap and uh, does him in with his claws. And so the idea is that in order to support Brahma, the creator, who after all is working for Vishnu, he, he's, a, he's, a, he's a servant of God, that uh, Vishnu kept Brahma's boon intact 
so that uh, Hiranyakashipu could not be killed by a man or an animal. So, so the Lord came as half man, half lion. It wasn't human being, it wasn't animal. He couldn't be killed in day or night, so he came at dusk, at twilight. He couldn't be killed inside or outside of any building, so he killed him in the threshold of the palace. And so, in other words, the idea is that uh, no material process will actually lead to immortality. So Vishnu preserved all the promises that Brahma made to Hiranyakashipu and killed him anyway. So then, uh, it, it's a very funny scene where Nasinga uh, was still roaring and, and, and the gods were all afraid to approach him. So they said to Prahlad, you go talk to him, you know, he came for you, you go talk to him. So <laughs> Prahlad went forward, Prahlad went forward, and then immediately Nisinga became pacified, and then said that, you love me so much that I want to give you a boon, you can ask anything of me, and I'll, I'll grant it to you. And Prahlad said that I don't want anything personally, but if you insist that I ask something, that I ask that you please grant salvation to my father. And then the father was saved by the request of the son. So, uh, anyway, that's a very famous story. And this form of Nrsingha is the specific avatar, or incarnation of Vishnu, that people pray to for protection. Because he, came to, because he incarnated specifically to protect his devotee, Prahlad. Is there any question that that's a very famous story? And there are many temples to Nrsingha throughout India. In South India also, there are... There, uh, in Andhra Pradesh, there's some very famous Nisinga temples. No question? Okay, next story. Uh, yes. Oh, oh the, yes. It's kind of related to Nisinga as well as all, as well as many other archetypes, and that is uh, the connection between kind of tribal worship and stories in the Bhagavad Purana because he, I, I, I said, and he is worshipped a lot by tribal people as well. And they can relate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, but that but as far as the origin, uh, I don't think we can draw the I mean you can't draw a definite conclusion of that, therefore it came from them. The fact that they were attracted to it. Yeah, okay. I I guess I was just wondering what your opinion of the relationship might be. It's a typical Puranic thing. You, you, in terms of worldly scholarship you can't say. And you can never say. And the evidence is not there. And so people who accept the story spiritually do it that way. And people that don't accept it may do it the other way. But in terms of hard evidence, no, it's not there. So uh, perhaps we'll go on to the next story. And then you asked about evil. Uh, that, that's a whole film. We, we covered that at one point. That's a, do you have some specific... To me, it seems like everything comes from God, and He is all good. And uh, then, how does so much evil? Oh, oh, oh that, yeah, that—that's a that's a whole philosophical topic that we, we did cover once, but we'll cover it again. <coughs> the next story I wanted to cover is Druva. Uh, just as the great lesson of, of the Prahlad story for Hindu for Hinduism is the Lord coming to protect His servant and the dangers of offending a saintly person, the danger of offending someone who has actually dedicated their life to God. So Druva, Druva is another five-year-old boy. It's, uh, it's a little boy, Dave. Druva is a great-grandson of Brahma, the creator. There's Brahma, the creator, 
And uh, he, he had what are called manasaputras, mental sons. He created sons from his mind. And so uh, one of them is Sayambhuva Manu, the first Manu. Manu's son was Uttanapada. Uttanapada's son was Dhruva, so his great-grandson of Brahma. His father had two wives. His father was a great king who had two wives. And I think I mentioned one time, although polygamy... Uh, was practiced, actually throughout, I mean, it's in the Bible also. Still, it was always problematic because the word for co-wife, sub means co, subhutni, co-wife, from that same word you get the word subhutni, which means enemy. So it never really worked that well. And um, Druva's father had two wives. One was called uh, Suniti, which means very virtuous, very wise. And the other wife was called Suruchi, which means very appealing. Very appealing. So, <laughs> so naturally the king, I mean, well, not the king went for the appeals, not the virtue and the wisdom. I mean, both wives were beautiful, but he was, he sort of came under the whammy of this wife, although she was not uh, so wise and not so good. So what happened is, each wife gave the king a son, and these two sons were about the same age. But Suruchi, because she knew she had the king under her power, wanted to cut Druva out of the picture so the whole kingdom could go to her son. This was really against Dharma. It was against the normal tradition. But she wanted to sort of get Druva out of the way so her son could have all the power. And so therefore she, well, she basically gave the king an ultimatum. The king was attached to her. So one day when her son, Suruchi's son, was on the king's lap, the king was on his throne and the kid was on the lap, so it's like, on the throne. The other kid was Uttama. So, Suniti's son, Druva, also wanted to go in his father's lap. He was five years old. He wanted his father's affection and love. But because Suruchi was there, she gave the king the evil eye, and then the king pushed Druva away, pushed him away. And then Suruchi just came and said, uh, you need to understand something, Druva, that you have a problem. The problem is you weren't born from my womb, and therefore you'll never become a king. So if you want to become a king, you probably should die and then take birth from my womb. And that wasn't like the nicest thing you could say to a five-year-old boy, or even an older boy. But So she you know, sort of politely suggested maybe you should just die and take birth again if you want to be a king. So Druva was really heartbroken. I mean, imagine he's five years old, his father pushed him away, and so he was sort of traumatized and heartbroken, and, and uh, he ran to his mother, and she told him that, what can I do? If your father doesn't love me, what can I do? And so, only God can help you at this point, because I can't do anything. And so, of course, she met Krishna, or Vishnu. So the boy, the mother never suspected the boy would do this, but he was uh, precocious. He ran away. He ran into the wilderness. And everyone presumed he was dead, because he didn't run into, like, a state park, or a national park, he ran into the old-fashioned jungle, wilderness, where there were tigers and lions and rhinoceros and all. I mean, the Indian wilderness, especially back then when there was so much of it preserved, it was, you know, all the dangerous animals in the world were there. And so everyone presumed he was dead. He just vanished into the wilderness. And at that point, the father realized what he had done. He was shocked and came to his senses and he was devastated. He was shattered because he realized that he felt he'd caused the death of his son, and he just sort of woke up. 
Meanwhile, Druva, who was this highly determined young boy, he went to the wilderness because he'd heard that yogis meditate on God in the wilderness. So he thought, I'll go to the wilderness and I'll find God. And then this guru, Narada Muni, the same guru, as, I, as was asked, came and thought, this is amazing, this five-year-old boy is so determined. So he came to him and said, what are you doing out here? And he said, I have to find, I have to find Vishnu. So Narada said, look, there are two possibilities. If, first of all, he said, you're five, you're just a, you're just a little kid. So don't take these things so seriously. Just go home, play with your friends, and, you know, it'll all work out eventually. And if you really are old enough, if you're precocious and mature enough to have serious political ambitions, then you're also old enough to understand the real philosophy of life, and why don't you just give up all these political attachments? So Druva said, very interesting philosophy, but unfortunately it doesn't touch my heart, because I'm a warrior by nature. And uh, I appreciate your wisdom, but you can tell me where I can find Vishnu, fine. Otherwise, uh, I've got to get going here. <laughs> so Narada saw, this boy is really determined, so he told him, all right, I'll help you. So he gave him a mantra, Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya, he gave him a mantra, he gave him a process of worship, sent him off to Vrindavan, where Krishna lives, and says, just meditate here. He went to Madhuvan, part of Vrindavan. And Narada began this ferocious yoga. He was so powerful that it said that by his pranayama, his breath exercises, he began to suffocate the universe. Because he was connected to Vishnu, and Vishnu controls the universe, so when Dhruva stopped breathing, the whole universe started gagging. Anyway, so finally Vishnu appeared to him, and here's the real punchline. And this is why the story is so important within the tradition. That when, when Dhruva actually saw Vishnu, when Dhruva actually saw Vishnu, he was ashamed of himself. Because he realized that Vishnu is, is so great and so attractive and, and the real object of love, that why don't I why didn't I approach Vishnu just to love him? Out of gratitude for all he's done, for the fact he's given me my existence. Why did I approach Vishnu for a material thing, like some political ambition? Because he wanted to get his kingdom back. Or a greater kingdom even. And so he was actually ashamed of himself. So when Vishnu asked him, What did you want? Why were you meditating on me? What was your request? Uh, Dhruva said, Oh, nothing. <laughs> but Vishnu insists, no, you wanted something. And then there's, a, there's one poem about this story, a famous poem, where uh, Dhruva said, um, Samin, it's actually a Swamin Kratarathosmi Varangliyache, that my Lord, uh, I'm completely fulfilled now. I ask for nothing. And Dhruva also said in one rendering of this that I was looking for pieces of broken glass, but I found a great jewel instead. And so he realized that there is no material thing which is actually desirable if one can actually gain your audience and have you know, and see you. But anyway, Vishnu insisted, no, but you did have those desires, so I will stay with you, but I'm going to give you a great kingdom anyway. And Dhruva had originally asked for a kingdom greater than his father's because he was so mad. But since his father was the greatest king of earth, and he also, Dhruva, wanted a kingdom greater than any of his ancestors, but his ancestor was Brahma, who controls the universe. So Vishnu, to fulfill his desire, gave him a spiritual planet, a Vaikuntha planet. The idea is there's a spiritual world. So he gave him his own little, sort of like, like a, an embassy in this universe. He gave him a spiritual planet called Dhruva Loka, which is was considered to be the pole star. If you know what the pole star is, um, when you look up at the, at the zodiac, 
at different times with one star which is directly above the celestial north north pole of the Earth. And so therefore, as the zodiac turns, I mean, I know the Earth turns. But from a phenomenological perspective, as the zodiac turns in the sky, one star just remains fixed. And that's called the pole star. It's like the pole around which everything moves. And in Sanskrit, it's called Dhruvaloka. And so Dhruva was given that world. But the, the idea, or the lesson that's always cited is that he realized that ultimately one, the greatest thing to ask from God is God, friendship with God, not a material thing. So the, any the questions on that story? That's not a very famous story from, from Bhagavad Prana. Yes? Uh, well, at the age of five, children began Vedic study. And, uh, yeah, very precocious or celestial children. The last story I wanted to tell is probably the most famous story of all the Puranas within Hinduism. As the Bhagavad Purana is the most famous Purana, most important, probably the most famous story of all is the Rasa Leela, uh, which I've underlined here with my bare finger. So, uh, the word Rasa... Uh, the word rasa in Sanskrit, without the line over the A, means like a taste or a flavor. And so the idea is that everyone has their own unique relationship with God, and a, their own rasa, their own unique type of relationship with God. But of all these rasas, the highest is a conjugal relationship with God. Also found in Christianity, what is called bridal mysticism. But anyway, so when Krishna was a young boy living in Vrindavan, he was so incredibly good-looking that all the young girls were in love with him. When he was just a, a young boy, all the young girls were in love with him. And, and when he played his flute, there's all these descriptions in, in the Puranas about Krishna playing his flute. It said the music was so enchanting that rocks would melt, that, that unmoving things would start moving, like rocks would melt, and moving things would just stand still, that even the animals and the birds, the cows and the birds, would just stop, and, and they couldn't move. That, that all creatures were just completely mesmerized and enchanted by the sound of this flute. So, Krishna, in order to satisfy the desires of these gopis, uh, the coward maidens, again, these are real major, major things in, in terms of Hindu consciousness, Krishna and the gopis. What he did is, in, in the middle of the night, he went out into the forest on an autumn night, and he played his flute, full moon night, and played his flute, calling these young girls that were in love with him. So they all left, and this is a you know, very conservative, ancient, religious society where you don't run out in the middle of the night to go dancing with some guy. <laughs> but all the gopis, I mean, the idea here is sort of that, that, that love for God is above ordinary social principles. So all the gopis, the young gopis ran to Krishna. Krishna then expanded himself into many forms, so each girl had their own Krishna. And, uh, and they danced in a circle. It was called the Rasa Mandala. Mandala means a circle. And this is, as I said, perhaps the most famous image in all of Quranic literature. This, this Rasa Mandala, Krishna dancing. Many different Krishnas. Krishna expanding himself, same guy, but in many different forms, dancing with all the gopis, and, and they have this romantic night together. And uh, it's very interesting because the question was raised, even in the Bhagavad Purana, the question arose like, Wait a second. Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, he comes to this world to reestablish Dharma, to set a perfect example of how to follow Dharma. So, like, is everybody supposed to, you know, go dance with girls at night or what? So why is Krishna doing this? And then, in response to that question, a, a very important principle is introduced that 
how should I put it, that, that ordinary souls should follow the teachings of great souls, like Shiva, or Krishna, or whatever. And uh, if a great soul does something, and also instructs us to do it, then, then we should follow it. Like, for example, you'll find in the Bhagavad Purana that Krishna would get up early in the morning, he'd perform standard Vedic rituals and so on. He would follow the Varnashram system. He'd do all these things that in order to establish Dharma. But certain things that, let's say, great souls do cannot be imitated. So in a sense, Krishna is teaching two lessons. One is, follow this example I'm setting, but the other is, I'm not exactly on the same level as you. And so the great souls do certain things to establish that point, that there's always a difference between Vishnu, or God, and the ordinary soul. So Krishna, it's also said that um, Krishna, in this Rasalila, actually, uh, neither the gopis nor Krishna were acting out of material libido, out of, out of material desire. The idea being, being that the gopis ran to Krishna, ultimately out of pure love, to satisfy him, and Krishna danced with the gopis to satisfy them. So even though it resembles, let's say, the types of things going on in this world in terms of bodily attachments, actually this was an activity, romantic love between pure souls. And if you remember from the Bhagavad Gita, uh, chapter 15, I talked about the upside-down banyan tree. Uh, where this world is actually a reflection of the spiritual world according to this idea. So that the romantic love that we experience in this world is merely a reflection of the infinite and pure romantic love that goes on among liberated souls. So that liberation does not mean chucking your personal existence out the window. It's actually the opposite. It means that by becoming a pure soul, you experience the real object of which this world is a reflection. So there's actually real romantic love, which is eternal. You know, you hear on the radio or whatever on your iPod, true love never dies, I'll love you forever. But uh, we know that in the real world, it's very different. So, but the idea is the reason we desire eternal love, the reason we desire that romantically is because it actually exists. It simply doesn't exist based on the material body. It exists between souls. And that when Krishna came to the world, he came precisely to demonstrate the pure love of pure souls. So anyway, that's the Bhagavad Purana, and time is up. So have a good weekend, and uh, see you on Monday. The world still exists.